want to start today by giving a, a major shout out to Reverend Reagan Gilliland, who filled in for me last week. She's not there. She was there at 8.45. She will be there at 11. If you see Reagan, uh, let her know that I gave her a shout out a second time at the 9.45 service. She filled in for me last week on, uh, on short notice. She did a great job with a challenging text. I was actually very much looking forward to preaching last Sunday uh, on that text from 2 Kings about the prophet Elisha uh, calling on two bears to attack some bratty kids who were making fun of them. Just a side note, if Baylor University has not figured out a way to use that story, they're missing an opportunity. I'm just saying. <laughs> My wife said she'll never see Sikkim bears and think of Baylor again. It'll always be Elisha and the kids that were mauled by the bears. All right, so I was looking forward to preaching on that text um, because I think the Bible always has something to teach us. Even in the curious, uh, the most strangest, the most puzzling stories, we believe that the, the Holy Spirit guides us in our reading of Scripture and helps us to make sense of and interpret uh, even the toughest passages. This is week three of our four-week sermon series that we're calling, I'm sorry, what? Over these four weeks, we're exploring some of the unsettling texts to be found in our most important book. There are unsettling texts for different kinds of reasons. And this series is also giving us the chance to talk about how we read the Bible in our Methodist context. Because being clear about how we approach Scripture is a crucial first step in making sense of it. The Bible is our starting point. As Christians, we believe that the, the small W words of the Bible reveal to us the capital W word of God. The word of God, of course, being Jesus. We believe that our relationship with Christ uh, is revealed primarily in the pages of the New Testament, and we believe that our relationship with God is shaped by our understanding of the Bible as a whole. Two weeks ago, in week one of this series, we read a, a curious story from Genesis 6, which gave us the chance to talk about uh, how um, Methodists have actually four sources for theological reflection. This comes right from our book of discipline. For us, Scripture is primary. It's our starting place and our foundation. It's the first of our sources we believe that tradition helps to shed light on our reading of Scripture. We believe that we, we test our theology with reason. And we believe that our faith is made alive in our personal and uh, corporate, our communal experience. All of which is to say, Methodist Christianity affirms four sources that guide us as we walk our spiritual journeys. And uh, I believe having these four sources is especially helpful when we come across troubling or challenging or quirky or strange passages in our most important book. Today, we're reading a psalm that's actually uh, in the recommended reading cycle for this year. It comes up in the lectionary in October, but instead of waiting until then, we'll tackle it today since we're doing this series. And here's what you need to know before we read the text. Uh, this is a psalm that was written from the context of the exile. So Judah had been conquered by the Babylonians. Jerusalem had been destroyed. Uh, the temple, which was believed at the time to be the very dwelling place of God, had been completely razed to the ground. Large numbers of God's people had been taken away to Babylon, most of them never to return to their homes. And for our faith ancestors, uh, it's, 
it is impossible to overstate just how traumatic this event was. It was the most traumatic single event in the history recorded in the Old Testament. And it's in this context of tremendous loss and uh, really almost unimaginable grief, bordering on despair, that one of the exiles wrote Psalm 137. So I'm gonna read the first six verses of this right now and we'll come back and read the rest later. Listen, friends, for the word of God as it's proclaimed by God's servant, the psalmist. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our harps For there our captors asked us for songs and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. This is the word of God for the people of God. So the, the Wesley Study Bible, which, by the way, I would highly recommend if you're looking for a study Bible, calls Psalm 137, quote, an honest, if deeply disturbing account of a community processing its grief and anger in the, pro- in the presence of God. Now, what we just read was not the, the deeply disturbing part. We're going to get to that here shortly. What we just read was a community processing its grief and anger in the presence of God, and they had plenty of justification for both grief and anger. I've just finished listening to uh, a biography of Julius Caesar, who lived in the century before Christ and before the founding of the church. Caesar's story is fascinating, it's compelling. I learned quite a bit that I did not know. And it was uh, also a reminder of the incredible violence and cruelty that dominated the ancient world. Uh, Civilians were were too often the innocent victims of the wars that were fought because of the greed or the ego or the the power struggles among the elite, among the people in power. Warfare was common in the ancient world, and civilians, who almost in all cases played absolutely no part in initiating these conflicts, always suffered terribly as a result of the fighting. I'm talking about mass executions and torture and sexual violence and uh, slavery on really an unimaginable scale. This was certainly the case with the civilians who lived in Judah and suffered at the hands of the Babylonian Empire. And so uh, to say that our faith ancestors were taken into exile uh, really does not do justice. It it does not in any way um, adequately describe what they had endured. And what we read in the opening verses of Psalm 137 gives us a glimpse into what they must have been feeling. After all that they had lost, they were taunted by their captors who mocked them and demanded that they sing their songs about God. These were sacred songs that they were wanting the Israelites to sing for them. They were the songs that they used to sing in the temple in worship and praise to God, the God who from the Babylonian point of view, was either too weak or too indifferent to save them. And uh, what the psalmist says is that while he's not interested in singing those songs for his captors, still he, he will never forget home. Should he 
forget Jerusalem, he prays that his hand that plays the harp, his right hand that plays the harp should wither if he ever forgot home. He prays that should he forget the beloved songs of Zion, that, that the tongue that sings those songs might cling to the roof of his mouth. Because uh, while he does not feel like singing, neither will he forget his home and all that they've lost. And when we, when we really fully understand the context of this psalm, it's, it's a, a heartbreaking passage of scripture. Uh, psalm 137 is in the category of lament. In this case specifically, it's a, a community a lament about a tragedy that God's people had suffered together. A, a lament, of course, is a, an expression of sorrow or regret or mourning. And there are examples of lament throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, laments show up in the prophets and the Psalms and the book of Job. There's an entire book called Lamentations, which also happens, not coincidentally, to be about the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. It's not just the Old Testament, though, that laments show up. Uh, in the New Testament, in two of the four Gospels, Jesus' last words on the cross were the opening uh, words of Psalm 22, which is a lament, Psalm of lament, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And so uh, this type of literature is really deep in our tradition. It's an important part of who we are. It is important to process our grief in the context of our faith and to remind ourselves, most importantly, that God is with us always to comfort and to sustain us, uh, especially in our lowest, most painful valleys. The one and only time that I ever recall hearing Psalm 137 in worship was actually in the wake of 9-11. So it's been a, a full generation now since those dark days in our history. Like many of us, my wife Whitney and I turned to the church for comfort and strength and hope. And I have a couple of distinct memories from that time period. The night of September 11th, our congregation had a prayer service. Um, I was still relatively new to Methodism. I didn't really uh, know the Methodist hymnal yet. And so I was really confused when our pastor made an announcement at the start of the service. Of course, every, everyone was on edge that night, right? And I, I'm pretty sure that I heard an audible gasp in the sanctuary when she announced, there is a bomb in Gilead. <laughs> Thank you. Several, several of you know where I'm going with this. So for just a moment, I actually thought she was breaking more news. <laughs> I thought, I was thinking, where is Gilead? Oh my gosh, is anybody hurt? Um, what she actually said, of course, was the title of a great African-American spiritual that was our opening hymn that night. There is a balm in Gilead, B-A-L-M, which was the perfect song to start that prayer service. We sing that every year on Good Friday, and every year I, I smile to myself in retrospect. Whitney and I are able to laugh about it in retrospect, but it really, on that night, uh, was a sad commentary about how disorienting and unnerving that day had been. That's, that's one memory from that time period. The other time, memory from that time period I have was a few weeks later uh, when she preached on Psalm 137. It was in the lectionary. It happened to be the lectionary psalm on that particular October Sunday for that particular year, and it was fitting. <laughs> that's the way the Holy Spirit works sometimes. Uh, it was a community lament at a time when, when we were processing our grief and anger in the presence of God. And she read the text all the way to the part <laughs> that my Wesley Study Bible calls honest, if deeply disturbing. 
So this is Psalm 137, verses 7 to 9. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? I almost jumped down, sorry. I went back to it. I went back to the comforting part. Seven, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall. The Edomites were kind of allies with the Babylonians at this time. The Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. It's jarring to hear that in worship. This past week, the Board of Ordained Ministry of the North Texas Conference um, interviewed candidates who were working to become clergy. We actually hosted those interviews here at Christ United. Being ordained in the United Methodist Church is a rigorous process. Uh, one of the district superintendents somewhere along the way told me they don't call us Methodists for nothing. <laughs> There's a lot you got to do if you want to be ordained. So you can be assured that everyone who has a a reverend in front of their name uh, has been thoroughly vetted by the United Methodist Church. This is my my 10th year on the board. It's my second of four years as the chair. And for all of those years, uh, I've been on the subcommittee that interviews candidates uh, about their understanding of Methodist theology and doctrine. There are some things that you just just have to know if you want to be a Methodist pastor. For example... You have to be clear about what we're talking about today, how we Methodists understand and read the Bible. You have to know our doctrinal standards. You have to know things like um, our theology of the Trinity and the teachings of Jesus, of course. You have to know what the problem of sin is all about. You've got to be able to articulate the concepts of the kingdom of God and resurrection and eternal life. I mean, the list is pretty long of the things you've got to have a, a solid grasp on. You also have to know what scholars call the Chalcedonian definition. It's a doctrine that was adapted, adopted rather, by the church at the Fourth Ecumenical Council in 451 AD, a long time ago, in the city of Chalcedon in modern-day Turkey. Now, if you want to be a Methodist pastor, you don't have to know all those specific details, but you do have to know the definition itself, which is that, that Jesus Christ is both fully human and fully divine. That's what we believe. He's, he's truly God and truly man in the older construction. It's a great mystery of our faith that our Lord could be both. And I bring that up because um, I read a Bible scholar once who suggested that Scripture is kind of like that. It's both, it's both human and divine. For us, the words of the Bible reveal the capital word of God. That's what makes it the foundation and starting point of our faith. But we do not believe that it dropped out of heaven as a fully completed work written by the hand of God. We don't believe that's the way God works. Instead, we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God written by human beings who were inspired in their writing. Which means that while it's probably overstating the case a little bit to say that it is fully human and fully divine, there is still a fair amount of humanity in this book. And we believe that just as the Holy Spirit was with the authors of these texts in their writing, so the Holy Spirit is with us in our reading 
of this text. In fact, uh, Jesus himself promised us that the Holy Spirit would be with us to guide us into all truth. That's in the Gospel of John. The, the end of Psalm 137, those closing verses of this otherwise heartbreakingly beautiful song, that section is a, is a cry for revenge. It's a curse. It's a, it's a prayer for retribution. It's a call for violence against the children of the enemies of our faith ancestors. Which makes it, in the words of the Wesley Study Bible, an honest, if deeply disturbing, account of a community processing its grief and anger in the presence of God. And the thing is, those closing verses are in direct contradiction (laughs) to other places in Scripture where God says, uh, God tells us, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not, not yours. Most importantly for us as followers of Jesus, it's in direct contradiction to the Sermon on the Mount, where he tells us to love our enemies and to turn the other cheek. And so when we read passages like the, the closing verses of Psalm 137, this is where I'm really happy that I'm a Methodist, We have to use our tradition and our reason and our experience to read them in light of the entire biblical witness. We have to to test them against our most authoritative scriptures, which for us, of course, are the teachings of Jesus. When we read the Bible prayerfully and in the context of community, uh, we trust that the Holy Spirit is going to help us discern the human and the divine. Because uh, this beautiful and life-giving and salvation-offering centerpiece of our theology and our faith, the most important book I believe ever written and the most important book in any of our lives, has a fair amount of humanity in it, (laughs) with a fair amount of humanity's full range of emotions, even sometimes the, the unhealthy, if understandable, ones. And for me, friends, I find that to be incredibly comforting (laughs) and incredibly affirming that God used imperfect human beings, just like me, just like you, to write our most important texts. And while I certainly understand the grief and anger that comes out in Psalm 137, I, I certainly understand it. I'm grateful for the fact that the Spirit guides us in our reading, helping us to understand those, those unsettling texts in their own context. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. Then as now, the Holy Spirit sits with God's people in our grief and in our anger, comforting, sustaining, and guiding us into all truth. Thanks be to God.